That's a wrap for this episode of the Candida Chronicles featuring Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. Michael holds a Doctorate of Nutropathy and is a New York State Certified Clinical Nutritionist. He is a professional member of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists and of the American College of Nutrition, and he's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. Welcome to the Ken. And hello again, everyone. This is Michael Biamonte, clinical nutritionist, for our weekly podcast. Today we're going to be talking a bit more about candida, some of the basics of it. And last time we left off, we were discussing some of the testing that could be done for candida. This is a very important matter to, to discuss because it's a very confusing issue. Uh, Most doctors, most patients are used to blood testing, and when it comes to candida, blood testing can be very inaccurate and is typically not used by people who would uh, be called specialists in candida. Um, There are two types of blood tests that exist for candida. One is an antibody test. Uh, Blood antibody tests measure the body's immune reaction against candida. This can be a little deceiving because as the body develops a weakness in fighting the candida, the antibodies will drop. So as an example, as the candida infection continues in the body over long periods of time, the body will start to produce less and less antibodies against the candida. And this is very bad because this is showing the immune system is weakening. Another type of blood test that's typically used for candida is called live blood cell. It's also called dark field. In this type of blood test, the practitioner will prick the finger of the person and place a little drop of blood on a microscope and he looks at the blood uh, cells under the microscope. Sometimes this can be very revealing because this can indicate candida cells which have attached themselves to white and red blood cells. So it can show the presence of candida in the body. The limitation of this test is it doesn't really accurately at all tell you the amount of candida that might be in someone's intestinal tract since it's not a measurement of the intestinal tract. It's essentially a measurement of how much candida um, was able to get into the bloodstream and then attach itself the the blood cells there. This is not considered um, systemic candida or a candida infection in the blood as most medical doctors would know it. This is would be considered um, candida which has simply attached itself to blood vessels I'm sorry to blood cells and is using that as an attachment to be transported through the system. So this is quite different you see than having candida cells which then in the bloodstream become a fungal infection like you would have with athlete's foot or something of this nature. 
so that is that's what we can expect to gather from blood tests from from for candida. Stool tests are the next type of test for candida, and stool tests have a limitation in that candida is very difficult to find in the stool due to its uneven growth in the intestinal tract. Candida doesn't really grow in a uniform manner in the intestinal tract. It grows in a very spotty manner. It, it can uh, sometimes not be found for several feet in the intestinal tract, and then you may come across a big blotch of it. So it's very spotty and blotchy, is how I would describe it as far as its growth. So it's not consistent. Bacteria in the intestinal tract go, uh, tend to grow very consistent and in a uniform manner. So if the stool sample that one picks or chooses to be uh, analyzed for candida doesn't have enough candida in a live form when it reaches the lab, the lab is not going to be able to replicate the candida. But typically how a candida stool test works, you take a sample of stool you put some of it on a petri dish and then you incubate the dish and the concept is that the live candida that's in your stool is then going to transfer to the petri dish and then grow in the medium that's there and then you'll get some kind of counter idea of how much candida you were able to derive from that particular sample of stool. Well the problem is, is if the sample of stool you have contains no candida because that particular sample didn't happen to press upon or contact much of your intestinal candida and it left without really uh, taking on any amounts well then your your sample will show negative even though you might be loaded with it it's uh, ex acceptable to me from my experience in dealing with stool tests for candida that about one out of five samples will be completely wrong and completely false negative and usually two out of five samples will give you an incorrect amount in terms of the act actual quantity or volume of candida in the person. So two out of five perhaps samples may give you an accurate reading which is not acceptable when you're trying to diagnose a disease like this. The second type of stool test which now exists which is rather new is the DNA type of stool test. This is a test sp specifically done by Genova Laboratories. It's called the GI effects test and this uses DNA technology to find DNA uh, from candida and other organisms. This is a more accurate test, although it still, it still can miss the candida or give you false readings. I would say its accuracy is a bit better than the traditional test, but still not fallible. It's still fallible, that's, and that's the problem. The other type of a test which has been used to identify candida is a urine test and there are essentially two urine tests. One is a urine test which looks for organic acids coming from candida. Uh, this is an interesting test because these organic acids that you're looking for are very easy to find from with the laboratory analysis. The problem is the organic acids that are from candida can also be produced by other mechanisms in the body. So while you may have a test that looks very accurate for candida and could be very convincing, when you look metabolically at all the organic acids that are being reported on these tests for candida, you find out that not all of them will always be produced by candida. They can be produced by the body in other ways. So this, again, lessens the accuracy. 
The next type of urine test, the only other one that I'm aware of, is the one that I developed uh, several, well, probably 10, 10 or 12 years ago, um, which looks for candida in two methods. The first method is it looks for free radicals, which are produced from the aldehydes that candida releases. Now, aldehydes are alcohols, essentially. Alcohols are something that which is a very common byproduct of candida. Um, these alcohols, which are called aldehydes, produce a lot of bad side effects in the body, about allergies, toxic reactions, and whatnot. They're responsible for a great number of the symptoms that people get from candida. These al aldehydes can be easily tested for in your urine, which gives you an idea of the amount of candida present, since candida is the major, major substance which produces aldehydes. In the intestinal tract, there are two things which ferment al alcohol. The one is bacteria. Probably 10% of all the alcohol produced in your intestinal tract is done as a result of bacteria fermentation on your sugars and carbohydrates. And the next, the next would be yeasts. The most abundant yeast in the intestinal tract being candida would be producing 90% of those alcohols. So your measurement of aldehyde production in your intestines gives you a pretty good relation to the amount of candida which would be present. And certainly when there are a lot of aldehydes present, that is a, a, a tip-off that the candida could be systemic because a lot of aldehydes like that would take many yeast colonies to produce them, perhaps not just intestinal but elsewhere. Another interesting urine test which we use is a test which uses a special reagent to make the antibodies of the candida uh, I'm going to clarify that again in a second, but just right now to keep it simple. To make the antibodies that are being formed by candida in your system solidify in the urine. Now, what we're actually looking at on this test is a complex of a protein called albumin with antigens and antibodies of candida, which are forming one complex and solidifying in your urine. This test was developed uh, many years ago by a physician who was looking for a more accurate way to detect parasite activity in the body. It was originally called the parasite tendency test. When I uh, started to use this test in my own practice, I found that it was actually more accurate for candida than it even was for parasites. So it became a mainstay of our candida urine testing. There are different patterns that we can see between these two tests, the aldehyde test and then the parasite tendency test, which we now call the dysbiosis marker, by the way. So it's a more accurate name since candida can also elevate the test. The patterns give us an idea as to whether or not the person is more dominated by intestinal candida or systemic candida. That's a matter of interpretation, which I won't go into today. We'll talk about that in a later podcast. So, uh, to my knowledge, aside from physical diagnosis of candida by looking at the, the tongue or a, a different mucous membrane or orifice, by looking at symptoms, these are the primary tests that exist for candida. At one time, there was a blood test, which I wrote about back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, called the Candisphere test. And the candosphere was probably, at that time, the most accurate test you could, you could get for candida. It was a blood test. And it was a blood test which me measured a combination of candida antibodies, candida antigens, 
and also a, a type of toxic protein that was released by the candida. All three were measured together to give you one score, and that gave you your overall candida activity. Uh, to my knowledge, that test is still being done. I'm not too sure which labs have taken it up because the original lab no longer exists. But there is a problem with that test, which is why I no longer use it and I don't recommend it. It's been found that the test can remain elevated for nine months after you have eradicated the candida. And the same thing is true of candida antibody tests. So if a person achieves a removal of the candida and the normalization of their intestinal flora, and then nine months later this test is still ringing positive, that of course can really throw you into the wrong direction. So with that, this actually uh, gives us two inadequacies of candida antibody tests. Is one, they can remain elevated long after the candida is gone. And number two, the antibodies can actually drop as the person's body and their immune response weakens against the candida. So the longer the one has candida, the more likely it is that their candida antibodies are going to drop to normal, where 10 years earlier they may have been very high. Now, testing is extremely important when it comes to dealing with candida. You must use some type of test in order to have an objective look at what's happening in the case. I say this because candida produces so many symptoms which overlap with so many other illnesses that unless you have an objective test, you're apt to be confused by the change or the variation in symptoms that occur. Unfortunately, on the internet, there are many groups which claim their products totally eliminate candida and cure you based on the fact that the symptoms get better or symptoms go away temporarily. Uh, unfortunately, this is very untrue because the candida may be reduced at that time or may simply be morphing in its activity. It may actually be producing a different set of toxins which now produces a different set of symptoms, you see. Uh, candida, let's say in the base state for a given person, could produce certain primary symptoms which then when candida is treated and the candida's metabolism itself alters and it's not quite producing the same group of toxins anymore. It may only be producing a part of those toxins. Now those toxins produce different symptoms, different than the whole had produced. So this tricks people and leads people to believe that their candida is gone or cured when it actually isn't. One of the most common things that we hear from people who come to us, new patients, is they were taking the candida treatment, they felt better, their symptoms got a lot better, and then after a period of time, all the symptoms came back again. Well, the, the person says, well, then the candida came back. Well, that's not really true. See, the candida was never fully gone. Because if the candida was fully gone and the friendly bacteria had been re replanted in the intestinal tract and become dominant, the candida would not have been able to come back. What this person had achieved was a remission of the candida. And unfortunately, because the, the program they did or the treatment they did was incomplete and not comprehensive, it never concentrated on re-implanting the friendly bacteria, so the person's symptoms eventually came back as the candida came back to its former volume in the body. So when you go by symptoms alone, it's very confusing, very confusing. 
because the symptoms of candida can also overlap with other conditions. As an example, in uh, young children and babies, eczema and uh, nonspecific contact dermatitis, let's say, is a very common symptom of candida. Uh, I've treated many children over the years with eczema who actually have candida as the cause of the eczema. But there are other conditions which can cause eczema as well. Uh, there are certain toxic metals which a child may come in contact with which will cause eczema when the child is exposed to that metal or touches that metal. Nickel is a very common one nowadays which is being looked at. People who have, uh, let's say, rashes on their hands and fingers and different parts of the body that are in contact with the jewelry they wear, if that jewelry has any nickel in it, they will develop an allergy to that nickel and have skin reactions. Very often these same people uh, have excess amounts of the, the metal nickel in their body as well, not just as a, a contact allergy. But, but surely what we have learned is that those people who react strongly to nickel as a contact allergy usually are nickel toxic themselves. And the same holds true with other elements and other metals. The same would hold true for copper, uh, for mercury, uh, for other metals. But nickel being the most common used in jewelry would be the one that we would be interested in here. So when we're looking at symptoms, you have to, have, uh, you have to keep in mind that there could be other issues causing those symptoms. And this is where candida overlaps with other conditions. Um, there's a, a newsletter that we published many years ago that showed kind of a, a diagram of overlapping circles that had different conditions with candida being in the center because it was the most common denominator but yet these other conditions would cause similar symptoms to candida. If we were to, if we were to draw this now in present time you could easily have candida in the center and then overlapping circles of conditions such as mercury toxicity which in itself can stimulate candida and cause similar symptoms. Even if a person doesn't necessarily have a strong candida overgrowth from their excess mercury that they've picked up from fish or from their amalgams in their mouth or whatever, you'll find that the mercury produces sim similar symptoms to the candida itself. Leaky gut syndrome, which we talked about last, last time, a very confused condition also can cause similar symptoms to candida. Yet, typical symptoms of leaky gut can occur in people who don't have leaky gut, who just simply have candida. Stomach acid deficiency, known as achlorhydria. The lack of stomach acid can cause an imbalance in your intestinal flora and cause a lot of bloating and fermentation of the food you eat. Those symptoms, again, could be attributed to candida, and what's interesting enough is people with candida typically have achlorhydria. They typically have low stomach acid. I want to just take one second here just to remind everyone uh, that you can email me questions at drb at health-truth.com, drb at health-truth.com, and I will go over those questions with you during this broadcast. Again, that's drb at health-truth.com. Feel free to email your questions in. We had some good ones last time, so... Let's take a look at those as they come in today. Another aspect of dealing with candida and dealing with testing is looking at supplementation that someone takes and how that could possibly affect the testing. Uh, 
if people are taking nutritional supplements, it's a good idea to avoid the nutritional supplements for perhaps three to five days before doing the candida testing because there are certain supplements which will make candida worse. And some of them can do it rather quickly. B-complex vitamins taken in the presence of sugars and carbohydrates make those sugars and carbohydrates more easily accessible to the candida and allow the, the candida in your system to be able to gobble up those foods and eat them. Therefore, the candida can spread in a reasonable time. You can get as much as a 10 to 20% increase in the candida in your system in five days if you're taking B-complex with carbohydrates. Luckily, not many candida patients actually do that, but that is theoretically possible that it could happen. Coenzyme Q10 is another nutrient which can have this effect. And again, when these nutrients are taken in the presence of sugars and carbohydrates, their effect on the candida is magnified. If someone is taking a low carbohydrate and uh, diet and takes the CoQ10 or the B-complex, you're not going to have the same effect. It's when you pair the nutrients with the carbohydrates or sugars, that's, that's what will jettison the candida into a much higher volume in your system, unfortunately. So when you're doing a test, you want to make sure that the person does not take these nutrients prior to the testing with the carbohydrates or sugars, otherwise your reading is going to be thrown off a bit. Now once you have the correct diagnosis and we know that the person has a candida overgrowth, the next thing that we have to be concerned with, of course, which is the second part of our talk today, is the correct treatment. So we've, we've begun first with the correct testing and now we're going to look at the correct treatment. Before we leave the testing, however, there's one last thing I'd like to say. In whatever test the person chooses, whether it's a stool test, uh, if, if it's a blood test, if the person has the accessibility of using my proprietary urine test, you must make sure that you repeat the test until you get readings which you have confidence in. Now, here's, here would be an example, and then, then we'll go on to the treatment aspect of this. If you get a patient come into your office who has vaginal yeast infections, and, and they have them frequently, and they also are complaining of pain when they swallow, and upon examination of the mouth, you see fuzzy white material there, which this is known as thrush, which is a yeast infection in your mouth and the person has severe bloating and gas, skin eruptions, very chemically sensitive, has been very fatigued since all of these symptoms came upon them. And you test them and you find the test is saying they don't have candida. Uh, this is not something that you're going to believe because there is some obvious physical evidence there. This is where the test that you're using at, at that point becomes either useless or it becomes of some value. If you're using a test and on this person it continually comes up with the candida being low, you know that this test is not of value. However, if the symptoms and the test results are agreeable with each other, 
then that then becomes a baseline in the test that you can use. So I would say the moral of the story is you have to believe your own eyes sometimes before you necessarily believe a test. Uh, even though it, a test is a, a very good thing, you must first believe your own eyes. Unfortunately, the purpose of having a, a reliable test is so that when you test again later, you have a comparison. This is something that gets omitted very often uh, by lay people and even by practitioners, which is uh, a sad thing. You see, because in a true scientific method, and this is something I learned from my experience in working with a lot of uh, engineers, particularly system analysis engineers, and uh, also, by the way, a great deal of the technology that I've developed in healthcare treatments and methods, and particularly in our Candida program, comes from the basic tenets of systems analysis engineering. So in engineering, you would establish first a parameter, a baseline parameter, and then later on, as you were doing your work, you would come back and compare where you are now against that parameter. So in candida treatment, we would have a candida test. We would have that as a baseline, and that's our starting point. And then later on, we want to come back and compare against that to see how we're doing. This is a true scientific method. What happens in many of the people that we see who come from other doctors, we find out that the doctor may have or may not have done some type of candida test on them at the start of the treatment. The person got better to some degree, and then no, there was no follow-up testing ever done. In this case, there's no way that you possibly can know how far you've come. You don't know how much candida you've eradicated. You don't know just what kind of improvement you have. You only know this person feels somewhat better. And typically what happens at that point is the treatment's abandoned, the person goes on for a while, and then at some point the candida comes back and they have a full relapse. And this is because there is no follow-up testing. This is particularly important in dealing with hormones, which is something we're going to devote an entire podcast to. When you're, when you're treating a patient, and particularly a candida patient, with HRT, which is hormone replacement therapy, you must be very careful because candida patients respond to hormones quite differently than your other, other, other type of patients who are non-infected with candida. A candida patient is very sensitive to hormones because indeed the candida itself is. Therefore, when you treat a candida patient with hormones, you have to really know what you're doing. And that equates to you have to know how the candida responds to hormones and figure that into your treatment plan. But when you're doing it, the hormone treatment with the person, it's essential that you start out with a test in order to find out where their hormone levels actually are then whatever your treatment plan you're going to do is obviously going to be meant on optimizing their hormones. But you then must follow up with the hormone testing at a later date to see whether or not it worked or, if it, or it's working, you see. If you don't follow up with testing, you're very easily going to undershoot or overshoot. And when you're dealing with hormones, that's not a good thing to do because too much of a hormone can really imbalance the person and make them far worse than they currently are. 
the only accurate way to work in that field is to test for the baseline, put the person on the treatment plan, retest them to see what has occurred. Then once you see their current status, from there you then tweak the program, tweak or adjust, and then you go on again, and then you test them again at a later date, and once again you adjust the program if needed. Probably the worst thing a practitioner can do with any patient is put them on a program and then thereafter not test them to make sure that they're in the correct range because at that point you're, you very easily will overshoot or undershoot. Now this holds true of candida treatments, of hormone treatments, and particularly of vitamin or mineral treatments. Um, as an example of this, I'll, a very quick story, we had a, a physician many years ago who came to me who had a prostate problem. And this doctor had read that zinc was beneficial to the prostate and prostatitis was very often caused by zinc deficiency. So this man began taking 50 milligrams of zinc a day and within a few weeks his prostate problem got better. So he continued taking the 50 milligrams of zinc per day but he was taking no other supplements at all. So he ate whatever his regular diet was plus he took 50 milligrams of zinc every day. Well, about three years after this point, he, his prostate problem came back. And he was very surprised at this because he had been faithful taking his zinc every day. So he thought to himself, well, maybe I need to raise the zinc. Maybe the 50 milligrams isn't enough. So he started taking 100 milligrams. Well, within a week, the prostate infection became ra a rage. It became much worse when he raised the zinc. So the man was completely befuddled. He sought out my help. Immediately when he told me the story, the first thing I told him was stop taking the zinc and start taking copper as a supplement. Now why would I do that? Well, it's a, in nutrition, we know that copper and zinc are major antagonists. As you take zinc, your body will normalize excess copper levels, but as you continue to take zinc, you can suppress your copper. So taking zinc can cause a copper deficiency and vice versa. If you're taking copper, it will suppress your zinc levels. Well, copper happens to be an essential mineral in your body's own natural defenses in dealing with bacterial infections. If you look at many um, nutritional formulas that deal with bacterial infections, you'll find copper is one of the main nutrients. So after this fellow took the copper for a few, a few uh, weeks, he noticed his prostate problem, his infection completely cleared up. This is because the copper I gave him was simply balancing out with the zinc. He had created a copper deficiency by taking zinc all these years. He never tested himself, didn't even know such testing existed or would be necessary. We did test his mineral levels, and at the time we tested them, we found that he was very grossly copper deficient, which my assumption and my call on that was very accurate, knowing the relationship between those two elements. So this is a typical problem that can occur when you're dealing with nutrients and you're dealing with nutritional treatments and you're not testing the person. You very easily end up in this kind of situation. And I just want to take a break again to remind everyone that you can email your questions. We're getting a few coming in now to drb at health-truth.com drb at health-truth.com. If anyone has any questions out there, we will go over them 
live at the end of this broadcast. Now, as far as treatments go, when we have the correct testing and we understand the person's correct levels of candida, our next question would be, what would be the correct treatment? Well, the basis of my candida treatment is, uh, is the datum that being candida is very drug resistant or can easily become drug resistant. And, and by drug, I also mean phytochemicals, herbs, whatever we want to call them. A correct treatment plan means that we must rotate our antifungals. If you don't rotate your antifungals, what will happen is the candida will start to become resistive to the medicines, the herbs, whatever you're taking after about 21 days. That seems to be the time span that it takes candida to start developing a drug resistance. And this is also mentioned in some of the texts that I had mentioned last uh, episode on candida. 21 days is what most people agree is where the candida will begin a drug resistance. So we like to pick uh, a before-day cycle for the initial candida elimination phase, which is phase one of our program. We want to take a four-day cycle because four days on a, a, a um, an antifungal or a, a let's say herbal germicide is a good period of time for it to begin to create an effect on the organism, but without coming close, anywhere close to giving it enough time for the organism to start becoming drug resistant. Now on phase two of our program, because we're then dealing with intestinal antifungals exclusively on that phase, we would then like to pick a little bit of a longer period of time. We arbitrarily take seven days only because it's a week and it's easier for people to remember. We could have took 10, uh, you know, we could have took 12, but seven days is, is going to be a fair assessment for being on the antifungals and seeing how the person's responding. And if the person's not responding to them by the test or by their symptoms, you can always then adjust those antifungals. The concept, though, remain, the concept here is that we do want to make sure we always rotate the antifungals. We've had occasion with some people where we found they were highly sensitive to two different antifungals where we would then put them on a 15-day rotation. So in, within 15 days they're getting a maximum effect from that product. And then we switch them to the other product so we're avoiding the drug resistance but at the same time they're being on the medicine for a good length of time to get an, a good effect or a good treatment from it. So this would be the first rule is that we would always have to rotate antifungals in a correct treatment plan. The next aspect of a correct treatment plan is we don't mix a candida treatment with a nutrient treatment. So what I'm saying here is at all, at all costs, whenever we can, we avoid giving the person excessive nutrients which could interfere with the candida treatment. This means we don't let you take vitamins while you're doing the candida program. Now examples of where we run into problems with this would be with antioxidant nutrients. Antioxidants uh, to a large degree act as antidotes for antifungal pharmaceuticals or herbs. The reason why this is is because the majority of the medications and herbs out there 
that attack candida and that also attack parasites do so by creating oxidative stress on the membrane of the candida. So now there's a, a little bit of a mouthful. What oxidative stress is, is where oxidants, which are the things that you take antioxidants to eliminate, oxidants could be thought of as very caustic and abrasive chemicals. And these oxidants are produced at the membrane of the candida or the parasite by the medication. So when one takes hydrogen peroxide, which is one of the best examples I could give, for candida as an internal treatment, the hydrogen peroxide produces oxidation at the membrane of the candida. This is creating oxidants that attack the candida. It, this creates oxidative stress. So it's damaging the membrane of the candida. When you take vitamin E, selenium, let's say different types of antioxidants of any kind with that hydrogen peroxide you're immediately reducing its effectiveness because just as those antioxidants are looking to protect your own cells <coughs> from the oxidative damage that the hydrogen peroxide is creating in your body it is therefore doing the same to the candida cell so you are in, in, the, in a sense not only ingesting a treatment but you're ingesting a remedy or an antidote to that treatment at the same time. And then we have other nutrients which would help strengthen and feed actually the candida. B-complex, as I mentioned before, do this. Coenzyme Q10 does this. Vitamin D, a major, major nutrient which enhances the integrity of the cell membranes of candida. So while on a candida program, one would want to avoid vitamin D. Now, vitamin D may be very healthy, and there may be many studies about how great vitamin D is for, for you in general, but uh, that's also very good and very healthy for the candida. So that's not something that you would want to take with your candida treatment. Iron is another good example. There are actual medicines out there that kill candida, that work exclusively by blocking the uptake of iron into the candida cell to make the candida iron deficient. And this is one way that you actually end up killing the candida is by blocking the candida's ability to uptake iron. So if, if the drug works in this manner, where the drug stops the candida from getting the nutrient, then wouldn't it make sense that if you took the nutrient, it would probably make the candida worse? since the goal of the drug or the medicine is to stop the candida from getting that nutrient. Also, in a, a standard workable candida program, you must be following the candida diet, which at a, at a later date we will discuss in detail. For now, suffice to say, the reason why we must follow a candida diet is because the candida diet weakens the candida cells by restricting the amount of sugars and carbohydrates which they naturally feed on this makes those cells more amenable to being eliminated by your treatment plan of your herbs or whatever your medicines are there's a lot of controversy about candida diets and the one thing that I will say at this point in addressing that because it can drive you crazy if you go on the internet and you look at a host of different candida diets that exist 
The reason why there are so many candida diets is because of the type of treatments people use and the variations on them. The candida diets that we use at the Viamonte Center tend to be very simple because we're not relying on the diet to eliminate your problem. We're relying on the overall treatment approach where people have poor technology in eliminating candida you will find that it become more dependent on the diet I'll rephrase that in saying the least sophisticated candida program you have the more it will overly emphasize diet to make up for that lack of, of sophistication or effectiveness in its overall treatment plan so if, if one has very effective medicines to kill candida, they are less dependent on the diet to control the candida or to try to control your symptoms. Because in a sense, when you go on the very, very strict candida diet, you're eliminating foods that feed candida, you're eliminating foods that candida reacts, interreacts with, and you're also tending to eliminate a lot of the foods which are allergic to the candida patient. So this, of course, is very good in terms of controlling symptoms. And when people actually follow these things and are rigid, they can get a big improvement until they cheat on the diet once or twice, and then they're back to where they started. So in my mind, the type of diet that we want to use in an effective candida program reduces the candida food or the candida feeding enough to where the candida becomes more amenable to succumbing to the medications that we use. We don't want to try to cure the person by the candida diet because that's false. All we're doing is covering up symptoms by eliminating foods and things that their body is reacting to. When we eliminate the candida, a correct candida program moves beyond that point of just eliminating candida to then reinstating the intestinal flora and just at that, at reinstating someone's flora when the candida is, is back down to a normal level, there can be a dramatic improvement and a stable improvement in many of the symptoms due to the function of the intestinal flora in the intestines. Intestinal flora is largely responsible for you absorbing nutrients. It's responsible for quelling or detoxifying allergic reactions that occur. It's your first line of immune defense in your entire body. And we can go on and on and on. But if we concentrate on establishing or reestablishing flora when we have the candida at a normal position again, then the person's less dependent on the candida diet because they're more in tune with their own natural functions and regulations of the natural flora and how that regulates and therefore stops many of the candida symptoms that the person has. Correcting nutrient deficiencies, another important part. However, we wouldn't do that while we're trying to eliminate the candida, you see. When you have candida, and the longer you have it, because you're on crazy diets, and because you're also at a deficit in not being able to absorb nutrients from your food correctly, please make sure you understand that all candida patients have malabsorption to some degree. Everyone with candida does not absorb vitamins or minerals correctly. So after you've gotten rid of their candida, you are left now with a deficient person. Their intestinal tract might be Im much improved. They may have their normal balance of flora, 
versus microbes there, but they are left deficient by the ravages of having had candida and sometimes by the effect of the diet. So in a correct candida program, after you've eliminated the candida, after you have reestablished your correct bacteria and normal flora, you would now attend to vitamin or mineral or any type of nutritional deficiency they have. Again, you would not do that while you're trying to eliminate candida because some of those very nutrients that they're deficient in are things which might stimulate the growth of candida while you're trying to eliminate it. In this wise, many different types of tests could be used to assess the person's nutrient level. We're going to go into that at a, at once again at a later podcast when we cover phase three of the Biamonte program in detail, which is the section where we're now interested in correcting vitamin, mineral, nutritional, and hormonal imbalances in the candida patient who has now recovered from candida. Lastly, in a correct candida program, after you have corrected the person's deficiencies, your next goal would be to correct their immune response. This is something which by the time you get to it may be very easy to do, depending on the type of patient you have. Generally, the healthier the patient was to start, the easier correcting or enhancing their immune system would be at that time. A very typical thing that you would look at in this patient would be a typical blood test, the type of bl blood test that most doctors or physicians do when you come in for a checkup. This blood test contains certain parameters in it which are very good at giving you a, a, a clear idea of how the immune system is doing. And from looking at those parameters, you can easily prescribe or suggest the right vitamins, minerals, or herbal supplements to enhance their immune system. So we're going to end off at this point, and we're going to answer a couple of questions. Here's an, an interesting one. Uh, it says, Dear Dr. Biamonte, I did your program many years ago. They quote parentheses here. They have 11. Um, I remained candida-free for a, a, quite a long time, and unfortunately, in the last six months, I had to have surgery due to a sports injury. I was given antibiotics and steroid medications, and I'm finding some of the symptoms of candida returning. What do I do? Well, the, the obvious thing to do would be to come back to us and get back on the treatment so that we can clean up what's occurred. Once a person does a candida program, it doesn't mean that they're therefore immune to candida again. Uh, when a person is, ad is given antibiotics and given steroid medications, these are things that make the candida grow. So unfortunately, even, even if you've beat it in the past, it's possible you could get a relapse of it if you're exposed to those medications again. My experience is, is on this is interesting because I have found that over the years, people who come back to us because they've experienced some sense of a relapse of the candida, uh, usually go through the entire program faster than they had the first time and are do a much better job. I, I tend to think the reason why this is is because the work that's done to eliminate the candida and enhance their flora tends to improve not only their overall immune system but the health of the intestinal tract and it makes it much easier, much, much easier to handle in the future, just in case anything happens.
All right, folks, well, we're going to end off at this point. We do have a couple of other messages here, but the time is of the essence. We're unfortunately going to have to end off. So join us again this Thursday at 4 p.m. for the next edition of the Candida Chronicles. Welcome to the Candida Chronicles with our host, Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. In this podcast, Michael will answer your questions and reveal the shocking truth that the cause of most chronic ailments is not what you've been told. The source is Candida, a yeast overgrowth which, when it becomes systemic, can cause all sorts of seemingly unrelated ailments such as chronic fatigue syndrome and even weight gain. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. And now, without further ado, Michael Biamonte.